Hey, hey, it's a wonderful day, and we are back here for another episode of That 90s Baseball Pod, powered by Access Twins. My name is Brandon Warren. I'm your host. You can find me on Twitter at Brandon underscore Warren, and I am joined, as always, by the curveball aficionado himself, at Greg Olson, with two Gs at the end, 30 on Twitter. Mr. Greg Olson, how are we doing today? Good, Brandon. How about yourself? Good. It's an it's a steamy one here in the Twin Cities. 90 degrees as I come back from a vacation weekend, but honestly, can't complain. We had a brief reprieve with a little bit of rain and some lower 70s temperatures, but we're right back in the thick of things. And has has rain been as hard to come by for you as it has for us this uh, this summer? Uh, no. Being in Alabama, it seems like it's almost. Not not a three o'clock in the afternoon without a nice little rainstorm blowing through. So water has not been the issue here. Oh well, that's indeed fortunate for you. We've got a lot of fun stuff to get to today. First of all, last week we did a show on the anniversary of the 1994-1995 player strike getting started, and I, honestly, I had a lot of fun with it. It wasn't exactly a fun subject, I'm sure, for you to relive, but I, I think we put together a pretty nice show if people haven't checked it out yet. No, I totally agree. I thought you uh, had some good questions, brought up a lot of things I hadn't thought about for 15 or 20 years, and, and uh, I mean, it's, it's an interesting subject as we, you know, kind of move closer to some, uh, oh, I don't know, disagreements about the... Uh, the players union and the ownership and and as that moves forward we'll have to uh keep an eye on that and possibly revisit it right and like i said this is that 90s baseball pod we are powered by access twins i'm brandon he's greg we do have a few sponsors we should thank hinterland coffee at hinterlandmn.com 10 percent off monthly subscriptions get coffee that is fresh roasted every single week i believe it's on tuesday so we record on Mondays, and so that means tomorrow. And so Humility Chains, check them out, etsy.com slash hum- shop slash Humility Chains. Uh, I'm actually rocking one of the black ones right now, but it's 21 different chains and bracelets. They look just like the ones that you see your favorite athletes wearing that cost many thousands of dollars, but these are about $25, $30 They look great. They benefit Nigu, which is a children's cancer foundation that both Royce and Cindy Lewis feel is very near and dear to their heart. So Humility Chains on Etsy, make sure to check them out. 3starsportscards.com, you can also find their brick-and-mortar locations in Little Canada and Bloomington if you are in the Twin Cities area. Baseball cards are still blowing up since COVID and even now into what we hope is coming out of COVID here in the semi-near future. But um, Greg, when you think about this sports card boom, is is it kind of blow your mind that that has come back in a way that maybe is uh, is bigger than ever before? I, you know what, it, it, it's always been a fun, I don't know, hobby. It, uh, you know, never got into the point where it was a, uh, you know, chasing the sales of, of sets and everything else. I thought right. it was more fun to, you know, chase the individual cards themselves. But um, it is a little bit surprising. I thought, uh, you know, we we do the 90s talk show and in the 90s or in the early 80s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, you know, baseball card companies were popping up like, uh, you know, weeds in my yard. And, <laughs> there, you know, there was, it seemed like 20, 25, 30 different card companies. And mm-hmm. felt like it wasn't, wasn't ever going to reset itself. You know, it, it, it 
And I, I think they kind of blew the market out for, I don't know how long it's been, you know, I don't know when it ended. I, like I said, I quit paying attention to the, the baseball card market, but I know that there were so many card companies that it kind of, you know, saturated the market and, and, and killed the game for a little while. And it's good to see it coming back because I don't know. It's a, it seems, it feels like a big part of America's pastime. Right. And in addition to tops and, all the other ones, Upper Deck, that we grew to know over the years, there was Fleer and Leaf and Pinnacle and certainly other ones I'm not going to remember. But it it was a fun time to collect and have a lot of opportunities to get cards because they weren't all six, seven, eight bucks a pack. It was you know a buck or two a pack, which getting kids to be able to collect, to me, is kind of the angle here as opposed to the resale market and adults ruining what should be fun for kids, which <laughs> kind of comes up a lot with uh, with baseball in terms of a lot of things. So if yeah. you, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, that, you know, this is way before Sports Center, and yeah. the, the the only way you really got introduced to other people in, in different markets was to, uh, you know, was to find them on a baseball card and then all of a sudden it's like, Hey, this guy's pretty good. Peak, you know, get a little bit of an interest in him. And, and, um, and that was the way things were back then before, uh, like I said, sports center. And you got to see guys every night on what's going on in different cities. Yeah. Especially for me in a small town too, where cable had, when I first got cable, I think 13 channels and, uh, channel 13 was ESPN. So we were just kind of figuring out, what Sports Center was, you know, the the Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann duo, and a couple of years later Stuart Scott <laughs> and all that. You know, it uh, it wasn't immediately something I got to see on a daily basis until I was maybe nine or ten years old. But anyway, if you are listening to this show on iTunes, please, please, please feel free to give us five stars. If you like the show, DM me on Twitter. If you don't, and tell me what you don't like, we'll try fix it. But you can catch us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Libsyn, Spotify, pretty much. Wherever you get your podcasts, five-star reviews will get you entered into a drawing for a monthly giveaway of a Greg Olson autographed baseball. We do not have a winner for August. I think we'll draw one next week, Greg. How does that sound? That's fair. Sounds good to me. Perfect. And Patreon.com, we're going to start doing, and I I texted you about this, but we haven't really discussed it. I think we're going to release episodes early to our Patreon patrons. I guess they're called patrons, which makes sense because it's a very similar word. But I think we'll record as we have been and try to release early in the week. And then the bulk release for everyone who listens on the regular apps will be Fridays. So as long as you don't have a gripe with that, we will do that because then the people who subscribe at either the 3 5 10 or $25 level will get that in addition to the other incentives that we've put into place in terms of hats and autographed baseballs and and that sort of thing, Zoom chats. And also, too, if you check social media, I did post a picture of the first That 90s Baseball Pod hat. I don't know, Greg, if you saw it yet, but uh, it looks pretty sharp. I think it does. I did see it. Um, yeah. Another job well done on your part of Thank you. Of getting this stuff done because it, uh, it, it looks pretty good. Now, today is a very special show. It's called Ask Greg Anything. And I think I, I was kind of kicking around some ideas for a segment name, you know, uh, fire at the fireballer, um, something about the fireman. You know, I don't know. We'll, we'll come up with something maybe for a fun name. As people know, symbol 
sponsors us asking you questions at the end of an episode. But since we're going to be asking you questions all episode long, I think we should give a nod to Symbol, which is the stock market for sports that allows you to trade sports teams like stocks and earn cash payouts when your teams win. That's Symbol, like S-I-M-B-U-L-L. Sounds like Symbol, like a, you know, like the symbol for CBS is that little I that's on um, Tony Romo's chest when he's doing football games. But Symbol has blended sports and the stock market so you can invest and profit off your favorite teams without high fees and high losses that can usually come with gambling. So take your sports knowledge, buy low, sell high, and earn cash payouts when your teams win. 7,000 people have already been an early adopter to this. So www.simbull.app, S-I-M-B-U-L-L.app. And our promo code is Bender because Greg had one of MLB's finest curveballs. So Bender on Symbol.app. That kind of sounds cool. You get a free week of Symbol Gold. That, this sounds interesting to me. It sounds like something that's maybe a little more um, easy to play than a season-long fantasy baseball because that can be kind of a slog when you draft a team in February and you're still trying to follow box scores in late August. <laughs> That is one thing I have not. I've, I've done the fantasy football. I'm doing an ongoing draft right now, but uh, fantasy baseball wasn't something I ever got into. I don't. Uh, that's a long season. You're right to be following box yeah. scores and chasing guys down, but uh, I don't know. I think it makes you know makes makes the game a little bit more fun. Makes you root for guys you normally wouldn't root for. Yeah, I play in a league where I have 40 guys on my team, and then you get exemptions for guys who are on the 60-day IL. So that becomes a lot of guys to track. But people aren't here to hear about that. I do have some tragic news that I don't know if you've heard. And uh, it's uh, New York Post tweeting earlier today that eating one hot dog takes 35 minutes off your life, a study that just came out suggested. And Greg, I only ask you or I talk to you about this because hot dogs and Baseball, you know, hot baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, Chevrolet, that whole Guy Fieri thing from the Field of Dreams game that you broadcasted. But that's um, that's some pretty tragic news for someone like me who who really enjoys a good hot dog with, I'll admit, ketchup, mustard, grilled onions, relish, whatever. But 35 minutes, that's that's pretty bleak, don't you think? I just uh, I'm trying to figure out where they got you know that that data set of, of 35 minutes per per hot dog because. Yeah, you know, growing up, that was that was kind of the staple, and then going to the ballpark. That's you know, especially playing for the Dodgers. That's just part of life. Is yeah, getting a Dodger dog, and and uh, so you're wiping out for every two Dodger dogs, you're wiping out about uh, three innings of baseball. Well, and people always say those 35 minutes would have sucked anyway. It's kind of like when uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was on TV, and it was uh, cigarettes, and it. I wonder if it wasn't um, Third Rock from the Sun, which my wife and I have been rewatching, and Dick starts smoking, and he said, oh, those seven minutes that that took off my life would have sucked anyway. So uh, I, I, yeah. that one makes me laugh every single time. But are you ready? pretty good. Yeah. Are you ready to dive into some questions? Yeah, let's do it. So I decided to throw you a little curveball. You've been throwing curveballs for 35, 40 years, but how about I throw you one before we start? I went through... Um, I have a statistical database at work that allows me to look up your career stats. And I want to know, This is there's no pressure here, but I, I wonder how much of this you'll be able to know off the top of your head. Which hitter, or hitters in this case, because it's two hitters, 
Did you face the most times? And I'll tell you the number. It's 19. You faced two hitters 19 times. Wow. I think one of them. Uh, no, maybe, no, maybe not a teammate. Never mind. I, uh, we talked about his team. That's what it was. Uh, it was one of the stacked teams of the early 90s. I mean, it, <laughs> my McGuire up. was up there. No, McGuire was up there with the A's. Uh, uh, Tony Phillips. Tony Phillips is one of them, yep. And then the other one is uh, a guy probably known more for his defense than his offense. Oh, man. I don't, uh, you got me. Devon White. You got me. Devon White, ah. 19 times. He, he was a teammate. Oh, okay, that's I, I, he made 90, 98, 99 with Arizona. Oh yeah, towards the tail end, yeah. I, I forget who, you know, those the expansion teams always have such a fun cast of players. In fact, and I did a podcast episode on this. I think like the two thousand Tampa Bay Devil Rays had at one point Jose Canseco, Ozzie Guillen, Aubrey Huff, and Jim Morris, and like that covers pretty much every corner of the baseball world, right there in terms of. Uh, <laughs> nutcases, characters, and um, all that comes with that. So, anyhow, uh, which player had the most hits off you? He had six. There's probably something like six or 15, too. Somebody that probably owned me. Power, um, power guy. Power guy? At least I remember him as a power guy. I wasn't Bonds. Griffey, no. Um, not, not a well-known guy. I think he was a Yankee for probably the longest period of time. Tartable? Danny Tartable no. with six hits against you, yes. Did he really? Yes. Wow, that's pretty good because I, I, I just it never seemed like there was, you know, a big discomfort when I was facing him. I felt like there was, there was places to go, but if I made a mistake, it ended up ended up going for a long single or a double. <laughs> yeah, hey, as I recall, he could, he wow. could really hit though, right? I mean, he was a, he was a pretty solid hitter, big, strong guy, right? Yeah, he uh, no, he, yeah, I don't know if he had most of his time with Kansas City. That's right. Yeah, um, had, I remember had, had some big years, big years in the early '90s with Kansas City, and then signed a huge free agent deal with the Yankees. That's right, and um, really didn't uh, didn't continue the the dominant years once he moved to the Yankees. Well, huh. that, ha- that happens. Four guys hit multiple home runs off you. Nobody else did. You- How many of those four do you think you can name? Well, Jim Tomei. Yep, that's one of them. That was one. This is a fun uh, list. Dwight because, Evans. Yep. Two other guys. Hit, one uh, is a Hall of Famer, and the other is uh, a guy who played a lot better when he went to a very specific baseball park. <laughs> All right, uh, yeah. Uh, so Dwight Evans hit two out of my first three home runs in the big leagues. Oh boy! Uh, not not yeah, a, nothing so to be was, ashamed of. That's a good player. He's a really good player. Well, I mean, I gave up one my second game in the big leagues to Steve Balboni, <laughs> and then my rookie year, 1989, I gave up one home run in 85 innings. That's solid. And that led the that led the league, and it was Dwight Evans on a first pitch breaking ball in Fenway when we were up twelve to four. He ambushed me. <laughs> um, 
and then he, I think he got me a 90. And that was the only home run I gave up in 90. Wow. You know, it was something stupid where, you know, I, I didn't give up home runs. I had a heavy fastball. And my breaking ball, it, when it was up, it was still spinning. So it was it was hard to hard to square up. Um, so he got me twice. So yep, I know uh, Vinny Vinny Castillo got me twice. Yep, that's that's the one who I was kind of angling Both for. Both times in Coors Field. Yep, Colorado. He really took off in Colorado. Uh huh. And the other one's a Hall of Famer. Oh. Oh, Barry, Barry, not Barry Lark. Barry Larkin. No. Nope, not Barry. He's At a catcher. He's a Hall of Famer. He's a twice. catcher. Oh, Pudge. Yep, Pudge. Pudge got Pudge you twice. twice. I guess so. I mean, that's what I the numbers remember. say. I don't remember one of them. Huh. Well, you know. Interesting. All right. As a pitcher, it's it's okay to not remember when guys get you. I think that makes you more emboldened on the mound. But um, a couple more here. Who did you strike out the most times? And it was eight. And it's someone we've already mentioned. Oh, the Dave Parker. Devon White, eight times. Oh, <laughs> all right. That was <laughs> and, good. Yep. and then only two guys faced you more than two times, and you never got them out. And it was only three at bats, or three plate appearances, four plate, like very few. But there are two pretty good players that you never got out. Do you have any idea who they might have been? I know. I think one of them was Mike Cameron. Yep, Mike Cameron, uh, guest of the podcast. Back when this was Midwest Swing, we had him on for an hour, and boy, he was entertaining. But yeah, you got you got that, that one. Yep, he was good. And then uh, the other yeah, one I is kept trying to kept trying to run fastballs inside on him, and he kept hitting them for singles to left field. Uh, didn't make an adjustment on that one. That is what the it other is. one? Barry Larkin. Ah, that's a good one. All right. Yeah, he, he could play, so he could play a little bit. Yeah, but. I don't know if that was right. I don't know if that was as fun for you as it was for me, but I love these little statistical intricacies and seeing what guys do and don't remember because it's it's remarkable what guys remember from their MLB careers. So let's though let's get to the real questions that people asked that um, you probably find more interesting. My friend Devlin yeah, was. Yeah, I got I got I got I got I got one comment for you. Sure, like, hit me with it. Fact. It was kind of, it was kind of funny. We we're. So I was the technical advisor on the TV show Pitch. Yeah. And had uh, Chad Kruder and I had worked together. And so he worked with the guy who hired me on Moneyball. And then the other kind of technical advisor that was in and around was Royce Clayton. Oh, yeah. And so we get we get called to uh, one of the movie sets. Um, I'm blanking on it right now in Los Angeles and we sit down with all the writers and they're asking us questions and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, stories start coming out and vivid, you know, high detailed stories. And, um, one of the, one of the writers just looks at me and she's like, how do you guys remember all this? (laughs) And it it really, it really was easy for me. I just kind of looked at her. I was like, do you remember the best times of your life? Right. And she goes, yeah. And I said, this, that was it. I said, you know, we were lucky enough to, to play for 14 years and it was the best time of our life. And yeah, you forget some aspects of things, but there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of really good memories that have just kind of getting pushed aside. But 
you know, so that that's why you'll you'll find most baseball guys have a pretty good memory on on some odd things and odd plays, but. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what you grew up wanting to do, and it's the best time of your life, and and uh, so that's that's how we always seem to have a pretty good concept of what was going on. Well, and I hope to be the fire poker that stokes the fire to make you remember some of that stuff that maybe you haven't thought about in a while. No, so far so good. You got me on that <laughs> on a couple of the questions. I, I'd forgotten I'd face you know so for me to face somebody that often. Yeah. You know, I'm running, and it, most of them were, you know, when he was Toronto. I didn't, I didn't see him a whole lot after the Toronto days. Right. And yeah. so it was. It, that was the funny thing was, you know, you'll probably see a, a lot of at bats against Molitor, Alomar, you know, really good players because it always seemed like when I came up in the eighth or ninth inning, it was game on. And here's the top of the lineup again. And you're just going, all right. Mm-hmm. Hey, there's Devo, and then here here comes Alomar, and then here comes either Molitor or Olerud. And it's just going, come on. So you got to attack Devo because he's the one that's the most, the easiest out of the trio, let's just say. Yeah. He, he didn't, Not to call him an easy he, out, he, but. He no, he just didn't, he didn't cover down and away real well, and you could get him to expand down mm-hmm. on breaking balls and. Both of those were kind of, kind of uh, my my mos. Now, am I correct? Royce Clayton, I think, played. Did he play Miguel Tejada in Moneyball? You know what? I don't. I don't know that for a fact. I, I want to say he was in that because I know, like, when I think about Little Big League and uh, Kevin Elster. Kevin Elster was in that movie because obviously yeah. I think it was filmed during the strike. And I think that, uh, you know, Lenny Webster was in that, a few other guys. I'm looking it up here, though. Royce Clayton in Moneyball was Miguel Tejada. Hey, not bad recollection for a huh. 10-year-old movie. But um, No, that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, Very anyhow. Nice anyhow yeah, he, you... was, he, he was one of the technical advisors with me on, uh, on pitch. And uh, so he had worked, worked with a man named Mike Fisher, who does most of the Sports commercials. And, well, uh, I like when they're true to form in terms so, of how baseball works. You know, you get guys who know, so you don't get the the atrocities or the the oddities of of the game and how it doesn't really look to people who know what they're watching. Yeah, yeah. No, I got a couple of nice compliments from. Uh, um, I can't think of who the catcher was with the Dodgers at the time. Sent me something on Twitter. It was just like, dude, well done. This was actually, you know. Was it A.J. Ellis? Yes, it was. Oh, nice. Good guess by me then. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Yeah, he's nice a good guess. dude. But he, yeah, he, re- he reached out and he was like going, really well done. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's as close as you're going to get. And, you know, it was fun to do. It was just really difficult to get the people that were doing the lines to look functional mm-hmm. athletes. Yeah. You know, not saying they're not athletic. It's just baseball is a very fine-tuned sport at that level, and to make it, you know, to make somebody that doesn't play it or hasn't played it very often to look authentic is, is not always that easy. That's why you get Royce Clayton playing Mikel Dahada. <laughs> well, brief know? aside too. I mean, wasn't uh, wasn't Charlie Sheen pretty good in Major League, or am I making that up? No, I thought I thought his motion was pretty good. Yeah, I really do, and I ben, thought 
you know, I know, I know Costner worked really hard on for the love of the game and, and, um, better than Tony Danza. You know, <laughs> yeah. Danza was, that was angels. Was that angels? Danza? Yeah. Yeah. He was Mel Clark. Yep. There you go. Yeah, that was you know it was it was a nice concept. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's get into the questions because I know people are excited to hear what other people asked. Devlin, my friend Devlin, wants to know what was the weirdest or most unusual thing a fan had you sign during your playing career. Wow, um, <laughs> I mean I, there, there there were there were body parts. Sure, that's um, probably the best way to put that. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, hands, arms. I turned down a couple foreheads. Um, <laughs> Pray for the best. Yeah, yeah, I didn't think that one was going to turn out very well with you know, kind of a permanent marker. But yeah, I, I would probably say forehead was the strangest thing somebody had asked me to sign. You know, well, and when I said body parts, I, I was talking about arms and and oh, and, good, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and cat casts are always fun. Sure. Um, trying to think of what else. I don't think there was any cars. Actually, no, I did sign an interior of a car. I uh, in uh, my look, in my collecting days, I ahead. had a bobblehead get signed, which was pretty cool. And it was uh, yeah, it was a Twins Fest, which I don't know if that was going on when you were a twin, but it was the, the basically the biggest autograph party slash winter caravan event that I think pretty much any team has and they hold it before the team goes out on caravan or right after they come out of caravan but before they go to spring training so it's super cold in the Twin Cities so everybody pile into the Metrodome and and it'd be on the floor you know where on the field so you'd get to walk on the turf and all that stuff but Brian Dunsing who ended up being a pretty good lefty reliever for a long time in the league was signing autographs for free in the down on the farm line and then the Beloit Snappers, who was the, one of their A-ball affiliates at the time, was giving away a Brian Dunsing bobblehead if you bought at least $25 worth of stuff. So I go over there and get a couple Beloit T-shirts, grab my bobblehead, go over to the line, <laughs> and have him sign my bobblehead doll. And he's, he's like, wow, I've never done that before. And then I, uh, when I was covering him, you know, fast forward probably five or six years when I'm not collecting anymore, I'm in the clubhouse as a, as a reporter slash blog or whatever, and I asked him if he remembered that, and he actually did. So that was uh, that was kind of cool. But that's the most nice. unique thing I ever got signed. Yeah, no, Brian Dunsing is a Nebraska boy. Got to oh yeah, and uh, he he had worked with my dad quite a bit when he was younger, and and uh, actually saw him was it last year or some off season when he was finishing up his career. And, uh, talked to him, very nice guy. Yeah, not bad at all. Bobblehead, that's pretty good. Yeah, so. Yeah. Next question, Sports Angle wants to know, how did Greg approach pitching to Barry Bonds? Now, he asked this question, and I didn't. he didn't know about the intentional walk with the bases loaded. I had to educate this person. So we can that can be a different subject for a different time. When you had to face Barry Bonds, what was your approach? And now I think we should keep in mind, too, you know, there were parts of your career where you were in the AL, and you, so you wouldn't have faced him. So it would have been a different point of your career, but it also would have been a different point of his career because we all know how great of a player he was in Pittsburgh and early in San Francisco, but then things were on a whole nother level in the late 90s and early 2000s. So if that evolved at all, too, feel free to expand on that. But 
when you had to face Barry Bonds, what were you what were you thinking? You know what? It was really it was by two years in Arizona, ninety eight, ninety nine. Seemed like I faced him. I don't know. I might have. You know, you're talking about it bad. Seems like I, I had ended up having eight against him over those two years, where I, I was kind of. I think the your total was like fourteen. I think your total was like fourteen or sixteen. It was, was pretty it? close to the top. Oh wow! Um, well, there you go. I thought you know. I, I know he'd gotten two hits, and one of them was a, a, a shockingly poor infield single that went through my shortstop's legs and it was like a routine out. Oh no. And they gave it a hit just because, just because we were shifted and he was standing in the, uh, between first, uh, between second and short. And it was just kind of like that went right through his legs. And how do you give that a hit? <laughs> yeah. And then the other one I think was a triple. Um, but going back to it, there, there was a, uh, uh, Barry Bonds had a, just a no go zone in and, you know, there were guys like that. There wasn't very many guys that were power guys that you, you you didn't get them out in. And so by, you know, facing McGuire, Dave Parker, Canseco, you know, Tomei, every one of those guys to a person, if you made the pitch inside at the belt, right on the black, if you made that pitch, they were out. Um. Barry Bonds was, and and the other guy that was kind of funny, you know, I, I never thought about it because I never really went in there on him. Was Alan Trammell? Was you? You couldn't get it in. Sheffield, I was, I was. Sheffield, you had to work to let him think that he you weren't going in there, and then you could get it in. But mm-hmm. you know, on a regular daily basis, you weren't getting in there either. But Barry Bonds was a no go in, and my breaking ball wasn't good enough at that point after, you know, I'd gotten hurt and I was kind of the back end of my career. It wasn't good enough for me to try to go at, you know, at a bat, at his back foot, which was, you know, for my first five or six years, that was, that was my out pitch on lefties was a, a down and in breaking ball. Um, so I stayed, I stayed away, tried to stay away with the breaking ball or at least outer half and then change ups and two seam fastballs away. And, and, you know, I, I, I walked him, I walked him more than I probably faced him or got him out. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, you know, that wasn't really the issue was, it was just, I'm not, I'm not playing with you in, I'm not going to make a mistake in. And, um, so I think the one time I struck him out, I got him out of the zone up and away. Change-ups were pretty good to him. You couldn't, you know, it was like I talked about a couple shows ago about, you know, getting baited. I couldn't, you couldn't continue to go with a bunch of change-ups because he'd sit on it and kill it. So he's, uh, I mean, he's one of the best hitters of all time. He's like, he's Ken Griffey Jr. You can't sit there and do the same thing over and over again because you're going to get hammered. And it's down in a, you know, I think the triple that he hit in the left center gap was, a really nice two seam fastball down and away and really well located and down. And he just laser beamed to left center. So, you know, there just wasn't a safe place to go. So that was what I did. I tried to stay away and, and work breaking ball and then try to get him out outside of the zone. I think that's pretty much all you can do. And I think aesthetically a a well executed two seam fastball from a right handed pitcher to a left handed hitter looks 
like I said, aesthetically pleasing. Two, and it's something I kind of think about, is the concept of pitches that stay in the zone for as long as possible but end up out of the zone versus the opposite. And I think that, to me, is kind of an interesting pitching concept. It's not exactly tunneling, but I have to believe that that's something you guys think about as far as, like, you want the pitcher to real or the hitter to realize it'll be a strike or a ball as late as possible. You know what? It's um, it's been talked about more recently, where uh, you're just trying to describe the aspect of what pitching is and being successful mm-hmm. is throwing throwing something that appears at, to the hitter that is is a ball. And, you know, so my overhand curveball gives the, you know, the initial aspect out of my hand that it's going to be a high fastball and they give up on it. And so something that starts out as a ball ends up as a strike or something that appears to be a strike and then ends up as a ball, which is exactly what you talked about. And it, it, I don't know, you know what? I mean, somebody had to come up and, and, and point it out, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't, it wasn't like, Hey, Greg, this is why you're effective is because, you know, it's that, uh, I, I like, I like what he does it's a pitching ninja on Twitter where he does the overlays and things are, you know, things are coming out of the hand at the exact same angle and they're different pitches. Yeah. And I think it's the aspect of, of throwing something that's a ball ends up as a strike or throwing, throwing something that looks like a strike ends up as a ball or the ability to, overlay your pitches to a to a level where you know i kind of describe it and i I never had a hitter tell me but it was like i had 30 i had 30 feet out of the 60 feet of where the hitter really didn't recognize what pitch it was you know my my arm speed on my curveball was very high high effort Mm -hmm. and so it gave the appearance of fastball and so you couldn't, you know, I wasn't slowing my arm down to throw a big breaking ball. I was throwing as hard as I could throw it. And I think there's, you know, there's aspects of just everything looking the same and just not being it or like you talked about, you know, balls coming in as balls and ending up as strikes or there's, 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 there's reasons to be successful, you know, other yeah. than throwing hundred miles an hour, you know, cause that even that by itself won't work. Yeah, to me it's it's kind of like tunneling, but kind of not. You know, where a fastball and curveball come out of the same slot and then separate for those last portions of a second on the trip to the plate. But same same gen, general concept. So that part of the game, yeah, pitching wise, has has always been super fascinating to me as someone who never pitched more than uh, if everybody was hurt and. I was kind of like the position player pitching <laughs> in a 11-2 game in the eighth inning. So, um, yeah, I didn't nice. get to pitch that much, but for me it was kind of kind of fun. Um, Corey Englehart wants to know, now he doesn't want to get anybody in trouble, but spider tack is a newer thing. What are the weirdest things you ever saw or heard about getting put on a baseball? Uh, pine tar is the age-old so I, you know, I had plenty of guys that had their their own little pine tar rags, and they, you know, cut a towel up and then tape it over, and then put pine tar in the center of it, and fold it into a small little swatch, and you know, put it on when they get out to the bullpen. That was mm-hmm. that was kind of the stand the standard 
you know, and, and I'm watching these guys and, and doing it. I, I, I think the, the most disappointing thing about this whole spider tack and everything else is the organizations, you know, having to work with guys to not use something in the bullpen. Now that this has all come out, like they were helping them to use something in the first place is right. the way I kind of took it. Yeah. And that, that's been the, the, the biggest disappointment is that the organizations got involved and, you know, we're, we're helping guys to not abide by the rules. And I found that the most disappointing guys, baseball, baseball is life. The guys are going to cheat. And, you know, I, I didn't do it because I, I was, uh, I always licked my fingers. Mm-hmm. So I would I, I would use I, I would use Red Man with uh, a you know piece of bazooka bubble gum wrapped around it and and you know then I'd just be chewing on that and I'd spit on my fingers and you know get a certain tackiness to where I needed it. Uh, I didn't use pine tar because it was it tasted horrible. <laughs> yeah. And so I, well I would lick my fingers and the pine tar would be on my fingers and be yeah. like this just the nastiest substance on the face of the earth. It's like licking a Christmas um, tree, isn't it? It's yeah, you know, yeah, a little bit. Um, Not that and, I've ever but, done that. You know, don't, don't want people think no. I'm licking Christmas trees in my spare time, but um, you know, that's Christmas tree with a little of the the, the pavement tar. Um, yeah. So let's see what. Uh, oh golly, it was what was it called? Slippery. To answer the question, as long as I've been talking, the slippery elm. Something like that. I had uh, somebody show me how to throw a spitball. And um, there was a substance, it was slippery elm or something like that you could put in your mouth and it would just, you know, make your fingers more slippery than normal. And then with like a saliva. Um, that would have been about the weirdest thing I've seen put on a baseball. I didn't, uh, I can't think of his name in Major League that was, you know, the KY ball or oh, yeah. throwing everything I got at him, you know, the <laughs> Vaseline or whatever <laughs> else he was using to throw a spitball. But, um, no, that was, that was pretty much it. it was this, I heard the slippery, I think it was slippery elm. The, well, and the com- then, uh, the common theme there sounds, seems to be trees, pine, tar, slippery elm. I, what's the, what's the common thread with yeah. the trees there? I don't understand. I don't, I, I really don't have anything. Like I said, you know, I was the bread man, which is another, which is a leafy substance. Um, <laughs> Maybe a little. Yeah. You know, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't have a really good one. I didn't, you know, I saw guys doing pine tar and that was kind of the standard, standard operating way to cheat, I guess. Did you feel like there was a gray area in there of command versus cheating, you know, a, a fine line or where did you stand on that? I, you know, I just, it, it, it's a rule, you know, and, and you play by the rules. It's just, that was, that was what, you know, yeah. Is, is it weird that pine tar is allowed for hitters, but it's not for pitchers? Yeah. It's kind of a weird one, you know? Sure. Um, but that is the rule. And, and I, I do completely recognize the need to, you know, have some, some stickiness, something, some substance. Uh, just on a cold day in Detroit, it's really hard to grip that thing because all they're using is a little bit of mud and somebody's rubbing up, you know, four or five dozen baseballs with this Mississippi mud down under the stadiums. Right. Well, that ain't a whole lot of fun, you know, doesn't mean they're going to 
do a great job of rubbing the balls up. And so the balls come out and they have a little bit of a sheen on them and they're hard to hold and they're hard to grip. And I just think there's, there's, there's gotta be some, some way to get it done without, you know, these guys needing to use a, a spider tack substance and without the organizations helping them figure it out. Yeah. So I don't know what that looks like. Well, I feel like we're probably trending towards MLB figuring that out, but I've been wrong before and I don't put the utmost trust in the game to figure, <laughs> figure things out as, uh, as we think they will. But, um, Bronk Finley wants to know, are you friends with the other Greg Olson? And what he means is the catcher. Now, I heard heard a rumor that when you guys would see each other, you'd swap fan mail. And I don't know if that's an urban legend or anything like that. But what was your relationship like with him? Um, Minnesota native, as I as far as I know. So yes, that's yes. What, I think he's still there. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's um, maybe part of why you guys get confused with each other when people are talking. Like if I say, hey, I'm doing a podcast with Greg Olson. And then they talk about, you know, Dan Gladden knocking him on his head in the 91 World Series and, and all that. Yeah. Yeah, no, he, uh, we really only met once, um, and that was the all-star game in 1990. We, we did a, a call or some interview together, you know, uh, what was it, about five, six years ago. And, um, that was really it. That's the extent of my talking to him. I think he's head golf pro at a, a golf course in, in Minnesota near you. And, um, yeah. Haven't really, you know, can't really say. I know that he's well thought of by, you know, some of the Braves guys that I played with, Smoltz, Maddox, Glavin, and um, and then as as far as the tight end, I, I did a card show next to him somewhere in Virginia a couple of years ago. He is a super nice guy. Nice. And uh, yeah, and. I think that's all I got for Greg Olson's. No, that's 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 a good answer. George Chang wants to know what's the conversation like between pitchers and the pitching coach on the mound. Um, well, it can it can go a couple ways. Um, the pitching coach can come out and they can be discussing how they want to get a certain hitter out. They can, if the pitcher is struggling with his command, uh, the pitching coach will go out and have a conversation trying to get him back on track. Sometimes, um, you know, sometimes it'll be a motivational speech where it's the, you know, the pitching coach, the catcher and the pitcher, and it's one person talking, that's the pitching coach. And that's, you know, going the, the way you would expect it to go where somebody's short of getting yelled at. Mm-hmm would be the third option and the fourth one is him going out there and stalling a little bit but they don't use that one very much anymore they just throw the catcher out there right um trying to buy another 45 seconds to a minute does it bother you that those things are monitored now in terms of how many mound visits you get I just think it's just baseball doing what baseball does and, you know, reacting to what they, they, they think is a problem with the game, which is, you know, it lasts too long. Yeah. Which it doesn't. I mean, if, if you implement your changes and it cuts eight minutes off the game, big deal. I don't, I, I think it's just baseball overreacting to what, what they think is a, a big issue, which is the you know length of the game or the time of the game. And, 
you know, adding the the base runner at the back end of the game in the 10th inning or the 11th inning in extra innings is, is another aspect, but I just, I, I don't, I don't like it. I agree with you. I, I think there are other ways that they can speed the game up and, you know, relief pitchers, not getting eight warm up pitches. They get three or four. Mm-hmm. They're already completely, completely and utterly warm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't like the, uh, you know, they, they could start calling bulks on guys that, you know, come set multiple times with their front foot where they're constantly setting down the, you know, the left foot and it takes oh, three yeah. or four times for them to, and I think if they took that out, you know, that's, that's a couple seconds times how many pitches times how many people are doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's ways to speed it up. Um, I don't, I think the avenues that they're going right now are wrong you know, limit throwovers to first base, uh, mound visits. I don't, I just, I, I think they're going about it the wrong way. Yeah. I think that's uh, that's a point that's well taken. Uh, Brandon in Minnesota wants to know what changes or training did you have to implement to become a professional broadcaster? Uh, good question. Um, yeah, I'll have to tell that guy. He didn't did one. Was it you? It might've been, <laughs> might could have been, um, you know what? I, I, I got lucky and I walked into, uh, I did that TV show with pitch. It gave me a little bit of confidence in my ability to do something. And I have no earthly idea why. Mm-hmm. And ESPN threw me, threw me a little league series in, uh, for the regionals in, in San Bernardino. And it was, it was kind of natural for me because I was, you know, I, I spent, you know, a decade and a half coaching my kids and sitting in the dugout or sitting next to the dugout, the third base coach. And I'd just be talking the game with them. I was like, okay, here's what happened. Here's why this happened. Here's what you can't do. And, you know, got away from the, the, the baseball world of where you have to use adjectives that are swear words because you're around kids. You can't. So it wasn't real hard. You're just talking about the game. It's just the, the the real hard thing is, and I haven't figured out how to practice it. So there is no real training other than sitting in front of a TV and, you know, working on calling a game. It's just, you, you got to get to your words fast. Yeah. Um, and it, it sounds stupid, but, you know, you stammering over trying to get the right word on radio or TV is not going to get you a whole lot of work. And they want, you know, it's about me relaying my thoughts and getting to the proper words and terminology in a, in a fast manner so that we can continue to move on and talk about the game. And that part of it is, is the hardest part for me. And so right, you can find me a, w- a way of other than sitting there and watching a baseball game and calling it by myself there's not, there's not a, there's not a practice. There's not people that will help you. Yeah. It's kind of like coming out of college and every job that you want to get requires experience, but there's no place to get it unless you do the job. So (laughs) yeah, that to me is kind of the operative way of that is exactly it. (laughs) Uh, John Topoleski wants to know, do you have any thoughts about how relievers are used today? And did you ever think you could be as successful as a starter as you were as a reliever? A good one. Um, it is a good one. I, I, I don't mind the way that they're being used. You know, I, it's it's not fun for people to watch, you know, this many guys coming in from the bullpen. 
And I think it goes more to the fact that, you know, the starting pitchers today aren't allowed to kind of work through, work through jams and get out of trouble, which is how you teach guys to work through jams and get out of trouble is by, you know, letting them, leaving them in there in the minor leagues and letting them figure out how to get out of things and toughen up. Mm-hmm. And we've gotten so used to protecting them in the minor leagues that they come up and they can only go five innings and then they get in a jam and, and then you got, uh, you know, I, I think the bullpen guys are better overall than we were. I think, you know, there's more of them coming out that throw harder and throw better and, and are able to, to make pitches. Um, it's just a different world. You know, I, I, I like the way that we did it. Starter would go six, maybe seven, and then you got, you know, seven, eight, nine guys and, you know, if you got a specific lefty that needs to come in against Griffey, then bring him in and, and then move on. Um, but, you know, we're talking about the days where we had a five-man bullpen. Right. And you had to figure out how to make a bullpen work or else you were going to wipe out everybody you had in the bullpen. So it, it was – I don't know. It wouldn't be, wouldn't be the worst thing to see some roster limits for bullpen or pitchers. But that would be adding a dimension that I don't want to go down either. So, <laughs> how, about, how about the part about starting – you know, what kind of success do you think you could have had as a starter? I think I, you know, I, I had, uh, I had a slider, um, that I, I, I kind of put on. Find in the count. So I had, I had other pitches to go to. So I, I don't think, uh, I don't think I would have been bad at it. I don't know. I, I, I can't say that I would have been an all-star. Right. I can't say, you know, what kind of, what kind of career I would have had with it. I mean, my mentality was I, I had to play every day and it was, it was just different. I, I, I could, you know, I had one inning to get and, and you just go. And so I would have had to change mind frame a little bit and become a little bit more relaxed and analytical about how I was piecing together the, the, uh, the at-bats, you know, where, Sometimes, you know, I, I don't, my, it might have been Mike Boddicker early in my career mm-hmm. that was, you know, I was like, how do you, how do you face in Wade Boggs? And he's like, well, you know, if I got two outs and nobody on, then I'm, I'm going to give him something to hit and let him have his single. And then, you know, when the game's on the line, I need to get him out, then I'm going to go to my go-to pitches. And, and that's what you have to do a little bit. And I think that's what guys aren't really great at is nowadays that um, I don't think they know how to just kind of, work around things and let guys take their singles if they do that anymore. Sure. And then when you need, when you need to get him out and it's okay, here's where I got to go to. And you got to, you kind of got to save that spot. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't, you you can't use it all the time, especially when you don't need it. That makes sense. All right. Brandon from Minnesota wants to know how is free agency different at different points of your career? And what I think he's saying, wink, wink is, um, you know, different types of free agency where multiple teams are interested in you versus you have to kind of go with whatever's available. How, how is that different? Um, that's a lot more relaxing to have more teams involved. It's also a lot more fun. And, and, uh, you know, I've had a little bit of both and that was, you know, when I, I got hurt with the Orioles, I had some really solid teams chasing after me 
Um, so that, that was a fun free agency. It was, it was a little stressful because there, there were some decisions to be made and teams would move on, you know, and, and go a different direction. And then I've had, you know, where it's the only team on the market and, and, you know, you're just hoping to, hoping to get a good shot when you get to camp. And that was, you know, that happened with, with Arizona. Mm-hmm where it was kind of, that was my last shot. I was running out of time and, and, um, uh, they gave me a good, they gave me a window and gave me a shot to, to compete. But uh, yeah, I've seen both sides of it and one of them's fun and the other one is really, really stressful. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I expected. Um, Armin Hoda <laughs> wants to know about your one career home run. So let's lay down a little context here. I believe you guys won that game 15 to four, but as one might expect, you hitting in any game would have most likely either been when you were in the NL or in the interleague era. This was in the interleague era, but you were in the NL. Um, off Marlins reliever Oscar Henriquez. He allowed nine home runs in his career, pitched for a few different seasons, few cups of coffee, not a ton of innings, but you know, you hit a home run off a big league pitcher. That's a pretty big deal. But you were a reliever. Relievers don't usually hit. There's, there's got to be some kind of fun backstory to this. Oh, it was. Um, my guess of my first at bat was in Baltimore when there was um, no interleague, and so I was the first American League, first American League pitcher to hit since 1973. Oh wow. I think so. That's one part of the story. So 1993 to 1973, something like that. So I was the first pitcher to hit outside of a playoff game. Um, and that was a, a screw up by my manager on a, on a tie game in Baltimore. So struck out that time. Uh, Bobby Cox gave me an at bat against the Reds when we were winning 17 to one. And I pitched a mop up inning. Mm-hmm. and he he asked me if I wanted to hit. So struck out, I think, I can't think of who that lefty was. might have been so Randy Myers. Did I don't you, remember. How long did you think about it, though, when he asked if you wanted to hit? Oh, I was like, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you don't know how many at-bats you're ever going to get. You don't know when your career is going to end. You're like, you're, you're looking for that first hit. So I said, yeah, and I struck out again, and then uh, – and then we go to this game about with the home run and I came in and like the fourth and I think I was the third or fourth pitcher. It was, you know, starter got knocked out. Second guy got knocked out. Third guy wasn't doing well. Mm-hmm. So I came in, I came in and it was four to four ish in the fourth inning. And, um, I threw really well. And so I get in a bat in either the bottom of the fourth or the bottom of the fifth. And I'm facing her Henry Henriquez and, he was about 93 on the radar gun and then threw kind of cross-fired. So he, he would land about eight, eight inches closed. And as a right-handed hitter and right-handed pitcher, it was very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so I, I struck out the first at bat in the fourth or fifth and comes back around. And it's like maybe the sixth, bottom of the sixth. I think I went through the seventh, but, um, and so Showalter comes up and we're, we're starting to open the game up. And it's 10 to four, something like that. And Showalter comes down the dugout and he's like, you want the good news or the bad news? 
And I looked at him, I was like, bad news. And he goes, same guy's pitching. And I was like, <laughs> what's the good news? He goes, you're hitting again. And I was like, not, I was like, that's, that's all bad news. There's no good news. I was like, he just, I was like, he, he, he's funky. He throws from behind me. I don't want to get hit. I'm not comfortable. Yeah. I was like, oh, that, no, I was like, Buck, that's all bad news. He just smirks and walks down to the end of the dugout, and I go grab a bat, and and um, I I did a half check swing, stuck my bat out, and fouled off a three two pitch. It was would have been strike three, and just barely ticked it off into the screen. And um, and this is where the world kind of gets bizarre, and you're just gonna have to bear with me. But he throws the next three two pitch, and it's a fastball inner half you know, about the quad, right at the quad. And as he throws it, I think to myself, I can hit that pitch. Well, I can't say I can hit that pitch in three-tenths of a second while the pitch was coming in, but I vividly remember going as the ball's coming in on kind of a slow motion. Mm -hmm. I vividly remember going, I can hit that pitch. And as soon as I hit it, it was it was – perfectly clean you know wooden bat just no sting no nothing oh man and i saw ball i saw ball flight and i just went i just went deep <laughs> and i was like okay well i just made it 12 to 4 because i knocked in uh, devon white from second base and it was all i said was r- run as fast as you can so nobody gets hit mm-hmm. and make sure you make sure you touch first base Mm-hmm. And then it was like, okay, I got first base. And I gave my first base coach a high five. And then it was like, all right. And I was like, run really fast, get to second base, touch that base. And then it was like, that was, that was my whole thought process was head down, run as fast as I can. Station make to station. Sure I touch the bases. And I high five the coach when I get to him. And that was it. And I was, I was kind of, I, I got, got hit home plate and gave, you know, Debo a high five. And then as I turned, I was fully expecting everybody in the dugout to be gone and to play that game with me. The silent treatment. And they were actually sitting, yeah, they were actually sitting at the top step and high-fiving me and Buck Showalter was laughing and, and, uh, I came in and I faced, I faced, uh, Cliff Floyd for one out and I was out of the game and that was it. So that was the story. I, I found out the pitcher who struck you out for the Reds, Tim Fortuno. Well, that hurts. <laughs> other, other, other one was uh, the lefty for Kansas City. I played with him too. Shoot, good dude. Uh, yeah, so that, w- w- what year would you? Yeah, let's see if we can find. We're gonna find it here. That was '94. That's the beauty of uh, oh. of this. So you had two plate appearances in '98, including the home run. Was it '99 that you placed faced the Kansas City guy or? Well, that was a walk. No, that was no, no. The Kansas City, the Kansas City guy was ninety three. Ninety three. Well, we're going to find was, it because um, that's what we do here. Left-handed so reliever. I played with him too in Kansas City. Oh it, man, I can uh, see his face. Uh, was it Billy Brewer? Yep. Ding ding. Billy Brewer. That sounds like a mascot more than a book. teammate. Yeah, it's, he it's Bernie, me out. It's like Bernie Brewer's cousin or something. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, Billy Brewer struck me out, Tim Fortuno. Yep. Oscar Henriquez. So I go into the home run, I'm 0 for 3 with three punch outs, and I'd hit like one foul ball. Um, 
And then I walked with uh, David Weathers in 99. He was lefty, wasn't he? So, no, he was a righty. Okay. He was closing a little bit with the Reds and, um, um, yeah, he was a closer for a little bit. Yeah, he walked me on four pitches, three of them at my kneecaps. And I'm like, look at him going, dude. Come on now. Well, what are we doing? Career OPS of fourteen hundred. I don't think uh, I don't think even Barry Bonds at his peak was there. So it might have been close, but that's pretty good. Yeah, it was. It was. It was uh, one of those. Like I told you, it was an entertaining career with little <laughs> aspects all over the place of just going. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that happened. Well, the uh, last. Yeah, the last one we got here before we. Uh, hopefully don't deal with any more technical issues is again from Brandon in Minnesota. He wants to know what MLB team did you not play for that you wish you had? Oh, that has to, I, I got to take it down to the Yankees and Red Sox. I'd probably go with the Yankees. Just the history of it. Uh, just, 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 just because yeah, they're the Yankees and, uh, but you played, they gave me a nice, you played the area that weren't that good. Um, yeah, but the year I was a free agent, the first time, 94. That's when they started getting good. Yeah. Was, yeah, and they wanted me to come in, and then they offered me a couple-year deal, and it was just my elbow was fried, and and I was like, I don't think I can go to New York and be a fairly high-priced free agent mm-hmm. and, not, and not function, you know? Right. I'm going to be another one of those, you know, legendary, uh, epic screw ups and I was like I I, I I was like, you know, I signed a one year deal with the Braves going I get back on track and then it's gonna be same thing as next year. So let's just go someplace safe and you know, not do a two year or three year deal with the Yankees and be horrible and get booed out of the yard for the rest of my life. Well and the strike hits and things change too, but doing that too I mean, if you flame out with the Yankees, who knows if you play through 2001? Maybe your career ends, you know, <laughs> DOA there because yeah. because nobody else touches you after that. So, as much as people would say, why didn't you just take the money and run? Sometimes it's not as obvious as just uh, the short term play. No, and it was you know it was a good setup, and it would have been you know putting myself with Buck Showalter years before, but yeah. Um, it was it was it was a tough call. My wife's still mad at me for not doing it, but it is what it is. Yeah. Well, this was a fun episode. I uh, hope you know what. M- a- a- yeah. No, go ahead. Today had to be that Brandon kid from Minnesota. Oh, jeeps. You make him blush. Um. <laughs> so fun episode. I hope we can do some more of these in the future. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and also too. I hope I didn't grill you too hard on your own career numbers because, keep in mind, I don't even have career no. numbers to be grilled on. So, um. Yeah, a fun show this week. I don't know exactly what we'll do next week. I've got a few ideas kicking around, but the nice thing is your career and the 90s were both eventful enough that I think we'll probably come up with something. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Maybe we can uh, start discussing finding a, a, a guest to uh, both of us grill. Yeah, maybe someone. figure that one out down the line, too. Maybe yeah, someone who famous guy. was uh, born on the bayou and wrestled alligators or something. Um, he, yeah, he's expressed interest, and he yeah. is entertaining. And well, on that Olympic team, too, so we can go down that, yeah. that avenue. I just got to figure out if my computer can support three ge- or two guests <laughs> if I got to upgrade this All hardware. Right. But that has been the Ask Greg Anything episode of That 90s Baseball Pod. Thank you so much. 
for checking us out again. Check out symbol.app, promo code Bender for a week free of Symbol Gold. Check out our sponsors, Hinterland Coffee, Humility Chains, Three Star Sports Cards. Again, five-star reviews on iTunes are huge for us. If you have any other questions, hit me on Twitter at Brand underscore Warren. Hit up Greg at Greg Olson with two Gs, 30. And, yeah, that's all I got for this week, Greg. Thank you so much for another great week on the show here. Oh, Brandon, it was great. I enjoyed it. And you've been listening to That 90s Baseball Pod, powered by Access Twins. We'll talk to you next week.